Cecilia and I are certainly delighted to be with you again. And just so everyone knows, if you don't already, uh, this was certainly not planned. Um, the Lord in his providence saw fit to uh, give Will a, uh, a questionable diagnosis, so to speak, a, a certain illness through the middle of the week. And when we arrived, he said, um, I wonder if you would be willing to preach. And in the providence of God, I'd recently preached uh, in the church where I currently am in Alabama. And I, I thought, uh, and by the way, this is no rehashing, uh, cold rehashing of something, but I really do think the text has a great deal to say to, um, uh, to the Presbyterian Church of Coventry. And so we will be in Psalm 85, and uh, I'd ask you to, to, as I'm preparing to read that, that you get that in front of yourself through either the Bible in the pew or your own or some uh, electronic device, and you'll probably want to keep it there. I will make references to the psalm as we work our way through it. Uh, but again, we are... We are glad to see you all again, and I know some of you are new to the church, and you haven't got a clue who I am, but uh, I was here uh, with Cecilia in 2018 and 19 and the first half of 2020, helping them, uh, helping this congregation transition to uh, the new ministry of, of Will and Shelley and others that assisted him up to this point. So, uh, let us pray first. O Lord, what we do not know, now teach us. What we have not, would you give us? And especially, O Lord, what we are not, would you make us? In and through the work of your Spirit, by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to your glory. Amen. Let us give careful attention to the reading of God's word, which comes from Psalm 85. To the choir master, a psalm, the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, and let them not turn back to folly. Surely this salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. 
faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. The reason I was preaching this psalm in Alabama was we wanted to have a series of sermons on the issue, and you can pick your word. I chose the word revival. Uh, Sometimes we use the word renewal. Uh, Sometimes we can talk about the special seasons of blessings from the Lord. But the condition, yes, in, in Alabama justifies a church being addressed with that subject matter. And a church in New England, in the state of Connecticut, has the need to to hear again the, uh, the challenge to bear the name of Christ in a very needy world, in a very perverse world, and challenging world. And this psalm does that. It is uh, a prayer, primarily, and it is, um, it concerns precisely the issue of the state of the people of Israel at this time. But more about that in just a moment. What is revival all about? Well, Sometimes I'll summarize it as those opening petitions of the prayer we have already prayed. The Lord's Prayer. Revival is about Lord, it's about the Lord and about His glory. Lord, will you not glorify yourself in me, in the church I'm part of, but also in the land in which I live? Would your kingdom come in greater measure? Not mine, but yours. Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Those are still the pressing needs and the primary needs, and it's really what revival is all about. Asking God to make his name great, starting with me and throughout the church, and into the world. That's what revival is about. Dr. John Brown, a famous Scottish minister and theologian, says this about revival, and he says concerning revival, this is our duty. He says, our duty in our present circumstances is very obvious. It is to seek such a revival of religion as commenced on the day of Pentecost, and to seek it by the means which were employed on that occasion, and to rest satisfied with no other revival that does not exhibit the great characteristics by which it was distinguished. Expect great things. Attempt great things. The triumph of truth. The conversion of sinners. The improvement of saints. The emancipation and purification of the church the Christianization of the world, study and pray, pray and study, pray and labor, labor and pray, and the work is done. 
who was saying those things 1,800 years after the birth of our Lord and still now 2,100 years after the birth of our Lord, we still need to be praying such things because there are still regions of our world which we would say are hard to reach with the gospel. And that's been true for a long, long time. The United States of America, certainly. The the city of Coventry. The greater Hartford area. Doesn't it need a greater measure of the glory of God and the kingdom of God and of the will of God being done? Is our attitude going to be, well, hey, Bill, welcome to life in this world. This is normal under the fall. What did you expect? This is what happens here, right? That's not the attitude of our psalmist. And it's not to be ours. That's why I entitled this sermon, Then at Trinity and Now Still Here. I think there's such a thing as holy discontent, a rightful feeling, Lord, it should not be this way. I don't want it to be this way, not for my sake, but for your sake, not for my kingdom, but for your kingdom. And so that's what we're addressing today. So let me give you a brief introduction to Psalm 85. Calvin speaking about this hymn, says that God's people uh, have, are in a situation where there are new troubles and new calamities. Most scholars view this at some point after their return from captivity. This is the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and others that have returned from the Babylonian captivity. And we know why they went into captivity. The people of of God were rebellious. They were disobedient, and they were such to, to such an extent that God enacted the penalties of the covenant. He had told them all the way back in Deuteronomy, when you get into the land, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to take you out of the land. And so he did. Seventy years passed, and then there is this return. But what is interesting is if you were to read and so, by the way, that's a glorious thing. There's, there are psalms in our Psalter of praise for God's returning uh, the people. And this psalm is, in a sense, one of those. Most people see it, as I said, written at a time in the post-exilic period. But this, the setting of this psalm is that this psalmist, as he stands wherever he was standing in that day, at that moment, he's looking around and he's seeing some of the same problems in the people of God that existed before him. You can read in Ezra and Nehemiah and find out how they were, they were not being honest in their business dealings and they were breaking the Sabbath and they were intermarrying with, with uh, people from the cultures around. And he's seeing it going on again. And so kind of have that idea in your mind as in that situation. Because... We have, we have spent time, and I'll refer to it probably more than once, we have rightly spent time looking at 50 prior years. But let's take a moment and just think about <clears throat> where 
Coventry, Connecticut, where Connecticut is, where the nation is, where we are as the people of God. And let's see if we can have this psalm apply to us as well. So we're going to do this uh, this way. Let me say our first main point. Remembering the past for encouragement. The Lord, the, the idea in our psalmist, the son of Korah, is that the Lord in the past did revive his people. He removed his anger and granted the grace of forgiveness and blessing. Notice as we look at these opening four verses, the past tense verb. He is clearly remembering, just like we are right to remember. He says, Lord, you were favorable. You did restore the fortunes. You did forgive the iniquity of the people then. You withdrew your wrath. And so he is, he is reflecting on the past, rightly so, of what God did. There was a time in the past when the people were in great trouble. And we could pick any number of occasions, whether it was Assyrians invading or Egyptians invading or, or idolatry in the land, whatever it might have been. There were times in the past when the people were in great trouble. But Lord, you came with a fresh visitation to us and the whole land and the whole of your people were blessed and renewed. It's it was a time of fruitfulness and goodness. But this psalmist knows also other things about those seasons. And for those seasons of freshness and newness to come, two things had to be dealt with. Two things were required. And you see the first in verse 2. The truth of the matter is, the people then were guilty. They were guilty of iniquity and sin. The sins of ancient Israel are too large and numerous to mention. But as I've said, they ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and, and their exile away. They were deported, uh, as we have said. And this brought a serious disruption in their relationship. And by the way, I'm not, by saying that, I'm not accusing you of anything different, really, than what I am capable of and often fail to do and sin and, and such as that. But we want to deal accurately with the text. And they were then. It had to be dealt with. And the second thing was in verse 3, that sin, you see, had brought a serious disruption with their relationship with the living God, with the Lord. Note the language of wrath and anger, even hot anger. But our psalmist is recalling the past because in the past, the Lord did hear them. He did hear their prayers and he did return in the mercy of forgiveness dealing with their sin and he did return with healing grace because his wrath was no longer upon them. He did restore. He was favorable. He did forgive. He did cover. 
He did remove wrath. He did turn from his hot anger. It was a time of blessedness and peace and fruitfulness. I think it's important to say he's doing this before the Lord and with his fellow Jews, reflecting on the past. Hear me now. Not to live in the past. We haven't had a 50th year celebration to go back and try to live in 1985. We live in the year 2023. But he does go back, just like we've done, to gather encouragement for God to do the same today because it's needed again today. Charles Spurgeon says, God's past doings are prophetic of what he will do. Hence the encouraging argument of the psalmist. Thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Therefore, deal graciously with it again. Many a time had foes been baffled, pestilence stayed, famine averted, and deliverance vouchsafed. Because of the Lord's favor, says Spurgeon, some favorable regard is therefore again prayed for. Get this principle from Spurgeon, really from the word of God, really from the character of God. It gives encouragement in the face of, in, in light of what we face today. He says, with an immutable God, that is a God who does not change, with an immutable God. This is powerful reasoning. It is because He changes not that we are not consumed. And we know that we never shall be if He has once been favorable to us. From this example of prayer, let us learn how to order our calls before God. We are to look back as we have done with the Lord's dealings with us as individuals, as families, as in a church and draw encouragement from how he delivered and aided us then so that we believe with all our hearts that he is able to do it in our day now. That's the great application, I think, from the opening verses. Let's go to our main point two, the present need for revival again. The present need for revival again. This section, verses 4 through 7, is specifically focused on prayer. It's precisely, as we've said, the psalmist knows that he and the people, the nation, are again in need of God's special visitation of mercy and grace. And so he prays. He addresses, he addresses the God of our salvation. He is firmly convinced that Yahweh is his God and Lord and that he is one of his holy people. Restore us again, verse 4, O God of our salvation. And secondly, he's also quite convinced that his and the nation's present relationship with the Lord is not good, it is not healthy, it is troubled, there's distance and separation. And when we use that kind of language and, and we see here just one biblical account, we're not saying we're earning our salvation or keeping our relationship with God on the basis of our works or things like that. We're just recognizing that a church's relationship and a person's relationship with the living God is precisely that. It's a personal relationship. 
And your actions, just like a, a wife's actions impact her relationship with her husband, and a husband's actions and words impact the, the quality, the state of the relationship with his wife, so it is with the Lord. It's not a static thing. It is on the secure foundation of God's election and calling. He will save every one of his people. But in the midst of getting us there, it's not some smooth sailing because we can wander. We do sin. We can experience grace and we can know his mercy. And so we look at the request. The people need to be restored. He says, restore us again. That's the, actually, the, you see the English word restore, it comes from the Hebrew uh, verb to turn. He's basically saying, give us repentance again, O Lord. Help us to turn back to you. It's the idea of turning back from sin and to God. The sins of the people today have to be repented of to enjoy God's blessings, to enjoy the fruitfulness of God's Spirit and His work in and among us. There is always a need of repentance in the life of every Christian. Sinclair Ferguson says, Faith cannot exist where there is no repentance. They are two sides of the same coin. Secondly, the psalmist prays that the Lord would put away his indignation towards them. I've already addressed that, that issue about how that is so. By the way, but I will say this. Is, is this really true? Can we really still talk about God's displeasure with truly Christian people? Listen to our Westminster Confession of Faith. Interesting paragraph. Chapter 17, 3, on perseverance of the saints. They have said that it's good, your salvation, if you are saved here today by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, it is secure. You will go to heaven. But they say, nevertheless, such people may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins. And what are the implications of falling into grievous sins? And for a time continue in those sins whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Sin is always serious business. But let me press on. So he's prayed for the Lord to turn and pray that the Lord would restore his favorable smile upon us. And thirdly, now he prays for life. I love, I love this language of the Psalms that is so often there. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? 
Lord, give us life. Give us spiritual life. Give us true life. Lord Jesus, you said, I did not come or I came to give them life. I came to give them abundant life. That's what he's praying for. He's praying that in the current moment, uh, through repentance and the restored relationship with God, there'll be the known energizing work of the Spirit of God in his life and in the people. And lastly, he prays for a fresh experience of the Lord's steadfast, faithful, committed love. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Show us. That's a prayer. That's really a prayer I ought to make every day. I ought to make every day. Every day, Lord, as the day starts, I need to know again of your steadfast love in Christ for me. Well, we need to press further. But we've seen a reflection on the past and the reason he did so gave him absolute confidence to give prayers for the present. And so where do we go for point three? Well, we go to the future. Hopeful, confident, waiting. This is verses 8 through 13. And so he says, he starts out there, let me hear what God the Lord will speak For he will speak peace. And he will speak this to his people and to his saints. This psalmist knows what happened in the past. He knows what's going on in the present. And there's a sense in which he knows what's going to happen in the future. This God, the immutable God who does not change, will come again in his time and grant the renewing that we need. The Lord will speak. He will speak peace to His people. And so we're to learn from this, that we wait confidently. We're to wait actively. That is, walking with the Lord. We talked earlier about the need of repentance. You'll see it's not just word filler when, when He says at the end of verse 8, God's going to speak peace, but don't let it us turn back to folly. Don't let us go backwards, Lord. You've granted us repentance. Keep us steadfast. And then we wait with a soon looking. And we're to wait with our hearts set on His glory. Verse 9. That glory will dwell in our land. That glory will dwell in our household. That glory will dwell in the assemblies of Presbyterian Church of Coventry, that glory will somehow spill out into the Connecticut landscape and its culture. That's what he envisioned. There's some interesting language toward the end, verses 10 through 13. It's like a prophet maybe injects a message Uh, It reads a little differently. Suddenly in verse 10, you have this language, steadfast love. I think really what you want to see is that this is what he is picturing for the impact of God coming and dwelling throughout the land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. 
I think what you're looking at here are um, one. Um, the, there are four words: faithfulness, excuse me, steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. The point in both lines is that attributes of God that had been at odds in our salvation are now brought together. Let me see if I can flesh that out for you. His steadfast love and his faithfulness to all of his attributes are disrupted by my sin because some of his attributes are, as we've mentioned, anger and justice. And love has got to find a way for justice to be satisfied. Same is true with righteousness and peace. His full holiness and righteousness and purity has got to find a way to be at peace with somebody like Bill Clark. One person writing about this says, these four divine attributes parted at the fall of Adam, but they met again at the birth of Christ. Mercy was ever inclined to save man, and peace could not be his enemy. But truth exacted the performance of God's threat. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And righteousness could not but give to everyone his due. So it's easy to see why a scene like this is understood as pointing forward to Jesus Christ. For it is only in him that this situation takes place in God's word. But he is seeing this now as coming. The Lord God is on his way. The Lord God is coming. How do we conclude this and apply this? I'm going to go back to my title for a moment. Holy discontent. In applying this psalm, I think we should clearly observe this psalmist's refusal to settle for a low spiritual plane or a partial restoration or the continued existence of abominable evils in and around him. He is not satisfied at that situation. Just so the Christian must not be satisfied with a partial work of grace in your life individually, in your family, in your church. Not that we argue and bicker about one another, but we choose the avenue of, to deal with whatever concerns we have, our discontent, through precisely the means he does. He goes to God in prayer. And he says, Lord, it's not like you want it to be. Help us. No Christian should be satisfied merely to be delivered from the penalty of sin. We must press on in prayer until God has delivered us also from sin's power. So this psalm also secondly calls us to pray for the spiritual vitality of the church. Thank you, John Sundet. You did that today wonderfully. We see some Christians falling prey to sin in and around us, in other churches, others suffering persecution, 
in and around us and throughout the world. So we pray for God's grace to strengthen both the tempted and the oppressed. We see ministries. We know ministries struggling to bear fruit. We know there are divisions in the Christian community. So our mindset is bigger than just ourselves. We pray for the church. To the one who does not yet believe in Christ, who may be here today, I want to repeat what I said earlier about steadfast love and traits like justice and wrath and peace and mercy. You and your sin, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, can never save yourself. You can never deliver yourself from this righteous God. And so the invitation comes. It is in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ that these attributes of God meet again. And it is in him that we find our salvation. And I invite you, you can speak with me or any of the elders, if that is the desire of your heart, to find peace with the living God. I'm going to choose to be something of a prophet as we close. That's why I had uh, the bulletin read that we would read from John 14. Uh, if the Presbyterian Church of Coventry, what does the next 50 years hold? What does the next 10 years hold? Whatever it might be. If we hear the words of the psalmist and practice this psalmist holy discontent, we're praying. And let me remind you about the words of John 14. John 14, verse 11 through 14 says, Jesus looks at us and says, Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What is the future of the Presbyterian Church at Coventry? If you hear the words of your Lord Jesus, if you practice like the, the psalmist does, true prayer for renewal and revival, he says the future for you holds greater works, greater than under Dr. Gray. No disrespect meant there. Greater than Brad Evans. And Brad's here today to say, if I ask him, Brad, do you want this congregation to do greater works than under your ministry? You would say, where are you, Brad? Amen. 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 Whatever I contributed, Amen. Greater works. Greater works under will and whoever follows him. It's the promise of Scripture. But we got to hear the call. It doesn't come automatic. we got to hear the call to invest specifically in praying for the glory of God to dwell in our lives. Let's pray.
All I know to say, Lord, at this point, is prepare us now for your supper, that may your glory begin to dwell in greater measure in our land. Amen.